Alright, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. How's everybody doing? And I have a couple of announcements before we begin. The first is that on this channel, I've done several episodes about the Phantom Killer, an unidentified serial killer who operated in the town of Texarkana in 1946. And that series has come to an end. And the Wednesday shows on this channel will soon be devoted to the New Orleans Axeman, another unidentified serial killer case from an earlier time in the 20th century. So please tune in every Wednesday for the next several months about a series on the Axeman. And as always, you can like and subscribe to the channel and follow along with the Monday shows as well, talking regularly about the Zodiac Killer. Every Monday is Zodiac Mondays here on BBOR. And if you would like to support any of these efforts, you can go over to buymeacoffee.com. There's a link to that in the description box. Buymeacoffee.com allows you to make a donation or contribution to help support Black Box Online Radio. And anyone who makes a contribution will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. There was an investigator in the Phantom Killer mystery named Lone Wolf Gonzalez, or El Lobo Solo in Spanish. And Lone Wolf Gonzalez was the subject of the book Texas Ranger by Brownson Mulch, and I thought it was only appropriate to do another one of his stories as a way to be a to make a true send-off for the series. If you were to ever read this book, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, Texas Ranger by Brownson Mulch, you will um, encounter a handful of stories from the Texas true crime history put together. If you're looking for a book that's going to do a deep dive into the phantom killer case as I was, you might not find that experience. And in all reality, during the section on the phantom killer, there was really just one small segment that jumped out at me and I had the realization, oh wow, this is, um, this is very, very good and valuable, and I'm finally under the surface. So the book is somewhat general, but if you're just someone who is curious about the true crime world, and you want to know about different stories and different aspects of true crime history, then I would recommend Lone Wolf Gonzalez, Texas Ranger by Brownson Mulch. And this is going to be from his chapter on the largest manhunt in the history of Texas at the time. It's called Manhunt in East Texas. What developed into the greatest manhunt in recent years in Northeast Texas began with a singular highway incident on Tuesday morning, February 11th of 1947. Soon after that, the lone wolf was sent in, accompanied by other rangers, to work with county and municipal officers as well as highway patrol in setting up a dragnet. Before he was trapped, the object of the search repeatedly slipped through the mesh of that net as it was being slowly tightened. That's a metaphor, I'm just being clear. During that night, which was a Monday, February 10th, two stores were burglarized at Mount Pleasant, the Titus County seat. In the very early morning hours, two more were entered at the Talco station, also in Titus County. At about the time the thefts were being discovered, the man who broke into the stores brought the spotlight was brought to the spotlight of law enforcement, and he brought it upon himself. He could not have done a better job, and he almost had, would have deliberately planned this. It turned out that he was Walter Ransom, 23 years old, and he would later admit to Lone Wolf Gonzalez that he was out on parole from the Minnesota 
Minnesota State Prison System. Yes, indeed, a criminal whose last name is Ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M. I was really thinking this must be some type of nickname like Willie Dynamite or something like that. But no, his name is Walter Ransom, and he's messing around in Texas while on parole from the great state of Minnesota. Right around after 7 p.m. on the 11th of February, a convoy from the General Motors plant at Detroit, Michigan, passed through Mount Pleasant on Highway 67. Its destination was the dealership of Elmer P. Phillips at Henderson and 2nd Street in Fort Worth. In the convoy, there were three Cadillacs, one Chevrolet, and one Oldsmobile. West of Mount Pleasant, Joe Wood was the driver of the last car. He noticed in his rearview mirror that an automobile was following him and gradually coming closer. It kept right on coming and rammed into the rear of Wood's car. The offending automobile did not stop. Instead, it swerved and then passed the convoy. Wood and his companions gave chase, at the conclusion of which Ransom's vehicle was overtaken with force and pushed to the side of the road. When Wood and the other four drivers, two men and two women, got out, there was a shouting match between them and Ransom. The quarrel was abruptly terminated when Ransom whipped out a pistol and ordered the three men to throw their wallets at his feet. Next, he forced them to turn over the Oldsmobile that was being transported to Fort Worth that had done that he had gotten to the car. Then he had gotten to the car and roared off down Highway 67 and headed west. The next day, the Oldsmobile was found abandoned north of Mount Vernon. It had run out of gas. The convoy minus the Oldsmobile turned back to Mount Pleasant to report the encounter and theft at Sheriff Guy Coker's office. Upon inspection of the automobile that Ransom had left beside Highway 67, officers found it in the burglary that tools had been used to tie up people, and they were used in the break-ins at Mount Pleasant and Talco. The sedan itself was traced back to Henrietta, where Ransom had stolen it, with the realization that a potentially dangerous man was on the loose, Sheriff Coker called for help from rangers and highway patrol. At the same time, neighboring county and city police were alerted to be on the lookout. Already, I'm noticing some immediate hallmarks about the case, as well as some similarities between this particular incident and other major manhunts that I've talked about on the channel before. This might be one of the largest manhunts in the state of Texas, but I'm reminded of the story of Donald Lee Buyak, who is a Zodiac killer suspect and was involved with the largest manhunt in the state of Montana at the time for doing some very similar things. Clashes on the highway, being involved with auto theft, and it turns out that there's a dangerous criminal roaming about and trying to get away, and then the authorities really have to track down this person so he doesn't commit more murders, as well as committing a host of other crimes that could ultimately lead to murder. Killing somebody to take their vehicle, killing somebody because they are a witness to his criminal behavior. And it's also very um, keen to point out that, very important to point out, that even a fool will know that if he steals a car in front of witnesses and drives off, that they will have a solid description of the car. So very frequently, the cars are abandoned. Although in this particular case with Walter Ransom, it seems that 
it was also just a practical choice. The car ran out of gas, and he didn't want to do anything so inconvenient as to go to a station and refill it and, like, drag a gas can back to where the car was, pour one gallon in, then drive to a different service station. No. So um, that also just makes sense in terms of practicality. But it is quite normal for a car thief on the run to abandon the vehicle and try to get into another vehicle where there are no witnesses present. But I also am reminded of something here when it talks about how there is this very strong confrontation in the um, in the middle of nowhere on the side of the highway. There's just this encounter where somebody draws a pistol and is holding it down against the um, three men who have their hands in the air and they have to drop their wallets. Because this might sound a little bit far out, but I'm reminded of the movie There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis. And there's a scene where somebody is murdered and then buried in more or less the middle of nowhere. And at the time I was thinking, wow, in the older days, people could commit a crime like that and simply just bury the person and walk away. And I think that a lot of people in the 20th century were carrying on with those types of methods. They did not expect law enforcement to catch them. They thought that they were just going to commit a crime, and they were still living in the Old West. And if you don't believe me, I even talked about this during the discussions on the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, who disappeared somewhere between San Angelo, Texas, and Abilene, Texas, because some people were just simply saying that Western Texas and perhaps other parts of Texas are still like the Wild West to this day, and that was just their theory on how people were operating and behaving. And it's the whole concept of if people are miles away from law enforcement, then they're going to do deviant actions, criminal behavior, and they're going to threaten human life. Because at this time in 1947, they don't even have any type of regular way of communicating. There are no cell phones, right? I mean, yes, of course. I mean, I know there are no cell phones, obviously, right? That was done for emphasis. So they have to go to a different location just to call it in. And I'm just seeing a lot of blatant disregard for the entire concept of humanity, civilization, society, and all the rules that we have that keep us in order. Back to the story. When the Oldsmobile sputtered to a stop between the Mount Vernon and Bogota towns, Ransom got out and surveyed the situation. Wary of staying on the road, he made his way on foot through the woodlands until he was at a safe distance from the abandoned car. Then he waited until dark before venturing forth again. He had to have transportation. By midnight, he slipped up to a farmhouse where he found a car with the keys in it. The vehicle was standing in a shed between the barn and a house. Before the, he could appropriate it, the farm hound stirred up with such a racket that the farmer got out of bed and switched on the outside lights. Seeing the intruder, he grabbed a shotgun and began firing at him. Also talking about how people just shoot first and ask questions later in the older times. In his haste to get away, Ransom dropped several rolls of coins. Their wrappers bore the word... Waco, which connected him to a recent robbery of about a thousand dollars from Clark's Grocery Company in the city of Waco. By early Wednesday morning, Ransom had trudged to the edge of Bogota. He, need, his need for transportation was urgent. He went up to a service station, 
that was just opening for the day's business. The man on duty was Edgar S. Stewart, 24 years old, who operated the station with his brother, at that time W.S. Stewart, 22, drove up in a spanking new Chevrolet, which the brothers had purchased the day before. Ugh, I'm... My heart goes out to you from beyond the uh, days. That was just what Ransom needed. I don't know, um, spanking new car, I mean, couldn't pick a more, uh, inconspicuous vehicle. I digress. So he pulled a gun and propelled Edgar toward the car. With the two brothers held at gunpoint, the trio took off and headed for Paris. The drive to Paris was not entirely disagreeable. The conversations during which Ransom bragged that he was the object of a search, all over by officers, but that he would manage to stay out of their reach. On the way back, he asked the stewards if they had any bills between them, and they produced $13 in bills. Instead of simply taking the money from them, he swapped an equal amount in wrapped coins. Those wrappers also bore the word Waco. And as you see, there are going to be some types of forensic connections, but by reading the story now, it seems pretty obvious to us in retrospect that Walter Ransom was guilty of all of these things. But it also goes to show you the fact that He's on to take people um, hostage and hold them up at gunpoint, but then he's going to show some courtesies toward them. Is this just some guy who's 23 years old and is doing whatever he wants? Yes, he's showing disregard most of the time, but doesn't that also suggest that he isn't someone who is pure evil, but rather someone who fell off the rails? I don't know. What do you guys think? You can respond in the comment section down below. When they reached Paris, Ransom forced the stewards to drive beyond the city into the country, at a remote spot where there were no houses in sight. When they reached Paris, Walter Ransom forced the stewards to drive beyond the city into the country, at a remote spot where there were no houses in sight. He ordered them out of the car. He took the wheel himself and just watched in anguish, then roared off down the road in their new Chevrolet, just as he had done in in the previous car theft, where the car had been stolen from the convoy. In the meantime, based on reports of the location of the abandoned Oldsmobile, officers in the command post believed that Ransom was heading for the Red River and a crossing into Oklahoma. As a consequence, orders were set up to put roadblocks at all bridge crossings along that part of the stream. But he fooled them, and he was heading southwest. Now, I am... Um, I've also encountered this in some episodes here on Black Box Online Radio, particularly the case of Jason Derrick Brown about a guy who committed a crime, the an armed robbery, and which led to murder. He actually robbed an armored car and killed the driver, and he drove south toward the border of Mexico to confuse the authorities, thinking that he was going to enter Mexico, and then stashed the car there, ditched the car rather, ditched rather than stashed. He ditched the car near the Mexican border and then most likely went northward into the Salt Lake City area in the state of Utah. But a lot of that requires some speculation as he was never apprehended. These types of criminals are perhaps not the most intelligent, but they aren't the dumbest either. They know that the authorities are going to be expecting them to do something. They also know that something such as roadblocks exist, or if they're leaving any type of paper trail, or that witnesses have seen them, then they need to be somewhat unpredictable. Thankfully, criminals are... I shouldn't say thankfully. It's more like unthankfully criminals are somewhat unpredictable. So they come by these types of thinking rather naturally. 
So the stewards caught a ride into Paris and reported the theft with their car. The word went into all of the counties in the area. Greenville police had just received the bulletin when Chief of Police Virgil Miller and Captain L.P. Petty in the patrol car saw a stolen Chevrolet pass them on the street and head toward Dallas. With sirens screaming and the red light flashing, the officers gave chase, firing at the car, which then speeded up. There was a perilous dash through the streets of Greenville, but it came to an end for Miller when the patrol car collided with a taxi cab. Chief Miller suffered eight broken ribs in the car crash and was taken to the hospital, and Miller was left in the care of others. Captain Petty com commandeered a private passenger car and, and resumed the chase, but it was too late. Walter Ransom had disappeared from sight. For his part, in the hurry to get away from the pursuers, Ransom lost control of the Chevrolet which he when he turned a corner at a high rate of speed. The car careened through two yards, which I believe they mean like two front yards or maybe two backyards, but the yards in front of people's houses, and crashed headlong into a telephone pole, an encounter that demolished the front end. Shaken but unhurt, Ransom looked about frantically for other transportation. In his excitement, he dropped two pistols and took possession of the first thing he could find with the key in the ignition switch. It was a yellow cab, also something that I guess people did in the past. Well, well into my childhood, people would even leave spare keys um, under maybe the visor or near the tires. They would leave some type of spare key on the vehicle itself, but leaving it in the ignition, that's some gutsy stuff even for the 1940s. In his excitement, he dropped the two pistols and then took the car that had the key and the ignition switch. Yeah, we got that. It was a yellow cab, and that was hardly an ideal getaway car. Sorry for laughing. But at least it had wheels. Double laughing. And it nearly a full tank of gasoline, and it would get him out of Greenville. Knowing that he would be expected to go down the highway toward Dallas, Ransom turned down the westward route on Highway 380. With word coming to the command post from Captain Petty after he returned to headquarters and the alert area was widened, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, along with Captain George Busby of the Highway Patrol and Fannin County Sheriff Dick Waite, were at the post charting strategy. They were joined by Dallas Police Captain Will Fritz, Highland Park Chief of Police Millard Gardner, and the need for aerial reconnaissance was felt, so a plane was dispatched from Dallas. Bear in mind, though, the um, air game in 1947 would have been somewhat primitive, somewhat rustic. Maybe rustic is a better, better word than primitive. However, after some time, the command post received a spot. A report that Rain Ransom had been spotted in the yellow cab at Farmersville, apparently heading toward McKinney. It did appear that he was trying to get to the metropolitan area where he could be lost in the crowd. But again he fooled them. Ransom turned north on the western outskirts of Farmersville and made his way to Highway 78 and took a wide circle through Leonard and then to Wolf City and on to Commerce. As I said, the natural, unpredictable nature of a criminal he had passed through the town only a couple of hours earlier on his route from Paris to Greenville. He knew that he had to get out of the yellow cab, and that is what the officers were sure to be looking for. I mean, even the next sentence here, it was easy to spot. Yes, I mean, out of all the vehicles, a, a yellow cab, he did what came naturally to him. He abandoned the cab and stole another car. And as you see, though, 
this is um, just the nature of Walter Ransom, just like crime after crime after crime. He abandoned the cab and stole another car, and his choice at this time was a 1941 black sedan with red wire wheels. Well, that isn't going to help you out too much better there, bud, which he took from Homer Clifton. Now that this was less conspicuous on the highway, he sped out of commerce and was retracing his trail back to Wolf City. From there, he headed to Bottom. And then, the, through the, uh, though the officers did not know that at the time, the yellow cab would be discovered a little bit later after Clifton reported the theft of his automobile. Ransom was again near the Red River, which he could not cross, the roadblocks. At the same time, he was boxing himself into an even smaller area. His erratic path made the lone wolf and his fellow officers at the command post swear. What in the world was this fellow going to do next, they wondered. In response to the calls for more help in running down Ransom, scores of officers in the search and roadblocks jumped in and were also called. Now he was known to be in the Black Fort Sedan, license number ES7610. Before the manhunt was terminated, almost 200 law enforcement officers were actively engaged in trying to spot him. Before it was learned that Ransom had gone back to Commerce, and an extensive and intensive search was going on along the highway areas leading into Dallas, the reconnaissance plane crashed into a nearby field near Cockrell Hill, and the pilot was killed. I mean, absolutely rest in peace to the pilot, but I did say that there was a, a uh, rustic air um, surveillance operation in all of the United States of America when it would come to planes and police um in police searches, I mean, even in the previous world wars, there are going to be um, some advancements in the military, but the planes that are going to be used for surveillance, I would just expect that they wouldn't have had the same types of technology that would be available today. It was while attending, attention was focused on approaches to Dallas that word was flashed to the command post that the Black Fort had been seen near Bonham. It was Wednesday afternoon, and additional roadblocks were quickly set up to keep from driving out of Fannin County. Ransom's next appearance was at a bridge cover, the Red River, north of Bonham. He tried to cross it, but it was turned back by gunfire from Oklahoma's manning a roadblock at the north end. Ransom's situation was becoming desperate. From the bridge, he headed southeast. Late in the afternoon, he drove into a service station grocery at Monkstown, where he bought gasoline and a roll of bologna and a loaf of bread. Breakfast of champions. Again, he disappeared. By the this time, his pattern doubled back on his tracks and recognized when he appeared in Monkstown at supper hour. Two highway patrolmen, Ross Kemp and W.A.B.D. of Paris, were waiting. I guess the bologna didn't hold him over that long. When he saw them, Ransom took off in a cloud of dust. In the chase, he wrecked Homer Clifton's black ford and fled into the thicket on foot. The patrolman firing at him, one bullet grazed his chin but kept going. The untouched bologna and bread were found in the wrecked car. Ah, uh, he didn't even get to eat it. Ah, uh, a shame. Well, I mean, out of all the things that have happened to this guy, hunger seems like even just one of the, um... Icing's on the cake in terms of punishment. Although armed throughout the two-day chase, he had not fired at an officer. Gonzalez realized that Ransom's primary aim was to elude his pursuers, not fight it out with them, but no one took any chances. And I was even thinking that myself when I was reading about how he held the men up during the robbery of the convoy. 
but he could have easily murdered someone there, but he didn't. And this is one point where I think Lone Wolf Gonzalez was thinking about things either correctly or we had somewhat of a same initial reaction that this guy really isn't trying to kill anyone if he doesn't have to. It's just that. It's just that. He wants to get away. Maybe it would be a last resort, but he's really just trying to escape so he can continue his life of uh, destructive behavior. On his abandonment of the fort, the net was drawing tighter. Gonzalez, Waite, and Busby moved into the field to direct the search in its narrowed confines, but darkness hindered efforts. There was a little. There was little that could be done, so the time that was spent deploying forces was when word got out in the northeastern parts of Fannin County and the northeastern portion of Lamar County. Residents reacted by turning on all the outside lights, locking their cars from which ignition keys had been removed, and placing guns within each of their beds. Despite the precautions, it was a night of nervousness on the part of householders. Ransom knew that the bridges were blocked, therefore he could not make his way across any of them. Additional officers were sent to the stations at the river forts, so the fugitive would be forced to swim the stream in order to get into Oklahoma. No one knew whether he could swim. At dawn Thursday, two planes were called in to circle the woodlands and fields and pastures. One took off from Bonham and the other from Paris. Admittedly, the only chance of spotting him from the air would be if he endeavored to cross an open area when, when a plane was near enough to catch him. Men on horseback and on foot surrounded the land in the fork of the Red River and Wadark Creek, slowly compressing the circle as they walked around and rode ever alert with weapons at the ready. It was rough country of the brush-choked thickets, some swamplands, farms, and abandoned houses. Dogs had been brought out at dawn, and they picked up at his trail, but lost it once one of the aban near one of the abandoned farmhouses. An African-American resident came up from and gave the information that he had seen a young blond man cutting across a field during the morning. The startling news because that field was outside the closing circle. It meant that Ransom had slipped through a hole in the human dragnet. This tip provided a fresh starting point, calling for the regrouping of the searchers. The hunt was narrowed to an area approximately two miles by three miles in extent. At 2 p.m. in the afternoon, Walter Ransom surrendered on the Gilgoss farm. He staggered out of the brush on the banks of the Boisdark Creek with his hands held high and said, Don't shoot me. I give up. He was barehanded, bareheaded, and his clothes were torn and caked with mud. His beard had three days of growth. Tears streamed from his bloodshot eyes. All the fight from him was gone. Thus ended the what the lone wolf called the greatest manhunt in northeastern Texas since the days of the Clydeboro gang. And Ransom sat there being searched, and he was found to be unarmed when he surrendered. That day of February 11th started out with what Ransom evidently thought would be just another routine robbery, but things got completely out of hand for him. In the Fannin County Jail at Bonham, he answered questions put to him by officers, saying that on Highway 67 west of Mount Pleasant, where he was headed from Dallas, he accidentally rammed a car in the convoy. When the guy argued about paying for damages, he just got mad and pulled his gun, and that was a mistake, he said. Question about what would have been done if he 
had been armed when the posse closed in on him, he said, I would have killed myself. I was just trying to get away. I had no special plans. One thing he conceded was that the whole affair wasn't worth it. I mean, that absolutely seems like it was the case in retrospect. Ransom admitted to Gonzalez that he started by, out by stealing when he was 13, and then by the time he reached 15, he was sent to the Texas State School for Boys at Gatesville on burglary convictions. After that time, he was never considered going straight. I just tried not to get caught. One thing that had been proved about him was that he was not a killer. He had numerous opportunities to shoot officers or victims, but he never did fire a shot. But he was still thinking about getting away. He was taken from county to county to face charges filed in connection with the recent spree. While he was in McLennan County Jail at Waco, he endeavored to involve another prisoner there in his plans for escape. Ransom offered him several hundred dollars if the other man's wife would bring a pistol to the jail and some hacksaw blades. The officer, the offer indicated that part of the loot from the Clark Grocery Company holdup was hidden in or near a, a place near Waco. The escape plot fell through when a jail personnel employee got wind of what was going on. The prisoner whom Ransom approached acknowledged that he had asked his wife to bring the wanted items because he was scared of him. Everybody up there was. From Waco, he moved to the Red River County Jail at Clarksville by Deputy Sheriff O.H. Greenwood and Deputy Marshal Jack Crater for the trip. Ransom was double handcuffed and chained with fastened handcuffs, then wrapped around his waist and locked. His legs were also shackled. You must think I'll try to escape, he chided the officers. We are just looking out for your health. We don't want you to get any ideas. McLennan County Sheriff C.G. Alexander replied. And thus concludes the story of the largest manhunt in the history of Texas at the time, back in the 1940s. The story of Walter Ransom and the crime spree that he was involved in. But I do think there is something to be said for about how he simply did not have it in him to kill or fire the shots, and that he was using the guns as mind power but I definitely don't think that Walter Ransom was a good person. It's just someone who didn't want to take the crimes to a particular level. And it also goes to show you that he's trying to rebel against the system, not trying to have some type of massive overhaul. More or less, someone who just wants to run from town to town as opposed to run from town to town and burn the whole place down in the process. So he's chaotic, but he isn't exactly cold, methodical, and calculating, and vengeful. It's done in somewhat of a lighter way. Now, back in the day, I used to be very superstitious, and I wouldn't even say the name Macbeth. I would just call it the Scottish play. But I obviously don't mind now. And if you read Shakespeare's Macbeth, I was advised to think about how that play involves murder, and it's about how someone must commit if someone does commit a murder, they must keep committing crimes to cover it up. And it's even much greater than just the concept of murder and death. If someone does one bad thing, they have to do other bad things to cover it up. And if somebody is going to even tell a lie, then they have to commit 
other acts of lying to cover it up. They have to lie again and again to cover it up. And in the case of Walter Ransom, for him, it was stealing cars. And I think that this is an example of somebody who just made some rather swift decisions, maybe not the most brilliant person in the world, but he did make swift decisions that confused the authorities and allowed him to evade capture. And this just brought in more and more people, so he had to become more and more evasive, and that's why it turned into such a big manhunt, and ultimately he was just defeated because of a lack of mental fortitude, which I would expect. And I think that also goes to show that he was somewhat of a functioning human being, and he would definitely, definitely fall into the category of being somewhat mentally deranged and far out, but not completely, not so far gone to the point where he's going to die in a shootout. He was perhaps just someone who wasn't completely gone, maybe 80 or 90% gone mentally. And I hope it was, I was very clear about how the... um. The Air War did exist in the 1940s and 1947. The Air Force is taking shape, right? But I just was not surprised at all that the planes and the searches that were organized by law enforcement in Texas, the air searches, are what I would refer to as most likely would have been somewhat rustic because of the... Um, of the limitations in technology, but yes, of course, World War II was very much involved with um, the Air War. Even going back to World War I, we see a lot of um, the pioneering in terms of what military technology and capabilities could do with airplanes. But in conclusion, I would say that um, this is one of the times when I think Lone Wolf Gonzalez comes out looking like a hero, when I first learned about Lone Wolf Gonzalez, it was back in 2019, because of the Phantom Killer mystery, of course. And as I said, this book has really only one chapter devoted to the Phantom Killer exclusively. And I thought Lone Wolf Gonzalez was a purely overrated historical figure, because there wasn't a lot of progress being made on the Phantom Killer mystery. But as you see throughout his biography... He is involved with many other true crime cases. One of them was the 1927 Santa Claus bank robbery, 20 years prior to this, which had very similar elements to what took place in the Walter Ransom manhunt. I mean, I have an episode about the Santa Claus bank robbery here on this channel, and you will see some very particular ways in which the authorities tried to corner the uh, participants in that one. Again, I invite you to like, subscribe, and visit some other episodes on this channel on the 1927 Santa Claus bank robbery, on the Phantom Killer, on the Zodiac Killer, on um, Zodiac Killer suspects such as Donald Lee Booyak, who was involved with a similar manhunt in the state of Montana, as well as the story of Frank Dryman Valentine, another Zodiac suspect whom I have an episode about, and his attempts to hitchhike from Reno, Nevada to Canada, getting involved in a very harsh conflict with someone named Clarence Pellet in uh, the state of Montana as well. Lots of episodes here on Black Box Online Radio. And feel free to check out some of the links in the description box. And every Monday is Zodiac Monday, so feel free to tune in for that. Thank you so much to uh, Brownson Mulse for this uh, book here that he created. And I also just want to read one final thing on the back where it talks about how
that Lone Wolf Gonzalez was involved in lots of fights himself, but he came out himself too. That was a quotation from him once. And he is definitely going to be uh, someone who I'm going to think about in a multi-sided way. As it says, he was trained in an old style of criminal investigations, an early advocate for scientific crime detection methods, and was instrumental in setting up the state's first modern crime detection facility. His many cases include the Santa Claus bank robbery in Cisco, the famous courtroom burning and lynching in Sherman, the race riots in Beaumont, and the Lynn and and the Phantom Killer episode near Texarkana. So, um, if anyone would like to read the book, it is called Lone Wolf Gonzalez, Texas Ranger by Brownson Malsh. And I always am trying to learn new things about the true crime world because I think that we just have a natural human curiosity about it. But share anything that you want in the comment section down below. I always want to hear from you guys. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.